You are listening to episode number 162 of the Pioneering Today podcast. And on this week's episode, it is very fitting because as I am recording this and its release date will be the week before Thanksgiving. And then, of course, Christmas comes close on the heels of Thanksgiving, which means I'm pretty sure your household, because I know it's true in my household, we are going to be doing a whole lot of bacon. I sometimes think I get more baking done during November and December than almost the whole rest of the year. And when you are a baking from scratch kind of kitchen, and you happen to live miles and miles and miles away from town or any really big grocery stores, you learn, one, to keep a well-stocked pantry, but two, how to do baking substitutions that still turn out and oftentimes can sometimes even be preferred. So today I'm going to be sharing with you 12 baking hacks or substitutions that you can do in your kitchen. The great thing about these is you can just stock basic ingredients in a well-stocked pantry. And when you've got those basic ingredients and the know-how or the recipes kind of go hand in hand a lot of times, when you know how to bake and what works and what doesn't and kind of the science behind it or how things turn out, then you can create a plethora of foods from just those basic ingredients in your pantry. You no longer have to rely on boxed mixes or purchased mixed up things. You can make your own mixes or just make it from scratch. And I don't know about you, but pretty much the end of November all the way through December, my least favorite place to be is the grocery store because you guys, it gets a little bit crazy. Sometimes it's so busy, you can't even find a cart. And when that happens, let me just tell you, if you walk into the grocery store and you see that there are no carts available, just know it is a madhouse inside. Prepare yourself, if you're still going to go in, that it's going to be long lines, hard to find things. Some things may be sold out or almost out of stock, and you're going to be waiting for a long time in the checkout line. Now that you know what today's episode is all about, Let me take a moment to introduce myself in case you're new. And if you're a return listener, high five. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris. This is the Pioneering Today podcast, and it's where we teach you to have a homegrown and a homemade pantry, kitchen, and homestead with or without the full-on homestead. And this is episode number 162, and every single episode has a full-on blog post. So written out if you want to print that or read it, share it with others, which I would love it if you share the podcast episode as well, but you can share it via the blog post that goes with it too. To get all of the awesome stuff that I'm going to reference in today's episode, including links to other items or and perhaps links to the items that I'm talking about, just go to melissaknorris.com forward slash 162. So just type in the number 162 after the melissaknorris.com. It'll take you straight here because this is episode number 100. And 62. Okay, let's dive into today's episode. If you have been baking or cooking from scratch for pretty much any amount of time, it's going to happen where you start to make a recipe and you realize you do not have a specific ingredient on hand. You may be like elbow deep into the recipe, so you're not going to stop. The ingredients are already mixed up and run to the store. Well, no worries. I have got some great substitutions and baking hacks 
that I have used for years here on our homestead, and I'm going to share them with you. First up is buttermilk. Real cultured buttermilk is a beautiful, beautiful thing. One of the reasons it's so gorgeous is because it adds extra acid to a recipe. And oftentimes with our baked goods, we want that extra acid because it produces a great texture. So if a recipe calls for buttermilk, especially something like buttermilk biscuits, you do not want to use regular milk. You need that extra acid. It's what helps produce that lovely flakiness and that light, airy texture. But you might not always have buttermilk in your fridge. Well, don't worry. This is my substitution for buttermilk. And on a lot of these, I'm going to give you several substitutions. The first up is to take one cup of milk and add one tablespoon apple cider vinegar or one tablespoon lemon juice. Let it sit for about five to seven minutes and it will curdle. You will actually see it thicken up. Then just go ahead and use it in your recipe. Another thing that you can do if it calls for a cup of buttermilk, just use a cup of yogurt, sour cream, or milk kefir or kefir, however you want to pronounce it. Obviously, with the yogurt and the milk kefir, make sure that it's unsweetened. You don't want to use flavored and sweetened. We just want it to be plain. But those are all great substitute and baking recipes. So you can use those interchangeably. This happens to me quite often because I don't drink milk. I don't like milk. I have never liked the flavor of milk. Now, cheese and butter... Oh, and cream, especially heavy cream. Now you better watch out because I love those. But just a plain glass of milk, ugh, I just don't like it. My family members, the kids and my husband, however, are very different. They're the milk drinkers. And the reason I share this is because I don't really keep an eye on the milk because I'm not using it. I'm not drinking it daily. And so oftentimes I will go to bake something and I'll grab the milk and I'm like, oh, we're almost out or there is definitely not enough here to make this recipe. I've made many, many different substitutions, so that's what we're gonna share with you. One of the things, if you've got almond or coconut milk, it works great. I have subbed that in in place of milk on baked goods, don't notice a difference. You will want to use the unsweetened version. You can take plain yogurt and or sour cream and just thin it out with a little bit of water. Another substitution for milk is to take water, so if it calls for a cup of milk in your recipe, Use a cup of water with an extra teaspoon of melted fat. So melted butter, melted coconut oil, melted lard, or avocado oil is flavorless. I don't like to use regular extra virgin olive oil in my baked goods because you can taste it. The olive oil has a flavor, which is great when we're using it with meat and vegetables. Not so great in chocolate cake. But avocado oil is already in liquid form. It's an oil that I adore because it has a high smoking point and it's a high heat oil, meaning it is not affected or damaged by higher cooking temperatures and it's in liquid form. There's no melting. So avocado oil is one of my go-to baking oils because it is flavorless. Up next, we are talking about cake flour. Sometimes you will see recipes that specifically call for cake flour. I don't ever buy cake flour. I don't buy self-rising flour. In fact, if you want to go back and listen to, after this one is done, of course, episode number 161, I really get into the nitty gritty of what these different flours mean and how to use them with your baked goods. So you can go there. And I share this tip in that episode, but I'm going to give it here and this one because it fits really good. 
But cake flour, obviously you're going to use it when you're doing muffins and cakes. For every cup of cake flour that a recipe calls for, you're going to take your measuring cup and put two tablespoons of cornstarch. And I only buy organic, non-GMO verified cornstarch. But anyways, put your cornstarch in the cup, two tablespoons, and then top it off with your all-purpose flour. And there you go. You've got cake flour. Pretty good, right? Self-rising flour. I really don't have any recipes that call for self-rising flour, but I know there's a lot of recipe books that do. So I'm going to throw this one in for you. You're going to do one cup of all-purpose flour, one and a half teaspoons baking powder, and a quarter teaspoon salt. Mix that together, and that is going to equal one cup of self-rising flour. Now, i got to put this one in here. This is not really necessarily a baking hack, but... Do you guys ever hear something or read something and you audibly speak back? I was reading something, a blog post online, and it was talking about substitutions for all-purpose flour. And I'm like, no, no, that is not how that works. I hope I'm not the only one that has his conversations with the TV and the computer. <laughs> Anyhow, all-purpose flour. As you know from listening to last week's episode, if you did, episode number 161, All-purpose flour is all-purpose flour because of its protein and its gluten content. Taking fresh ground flour, so whole wheat flour that you have ground up in a home mill, and sifting it does not make all-purpose flour. Just because the bran and the germ are removed, it does not make all-purpose flour. All-purpose flour is protein count and the amount of gluten in it. That's what makes all-purpose flour flour. So when you do grind your own fresh flour at home and you sift it, you make it finer, but it doesn't make it all-purpose flour. Next up with our baking substitution, corn syrup. Now let's talk about this one just for a minute because if you have listened to anything that I have written, well, I guess you wouldn't be listening to what I had written. If you've listened to any of my podcasts or videos online, and or read any of my books, then you know that I am a huge advocate for staying away from and not consuming GMOs. High fructose corn syrup is a genetically modified product because most commercial corn grown in the United States is genetically modified. And it's been severely processed in order for it to become high fructose. But corn syrup that you're buying for baking-wise at home is generally not high-fructose corn syrup. If you have a brand of organic and non-GMO verified corn syrup that you like to use, by all means, keep using that bad boy. I have really yet to find one, and because I don't use corn syrup very often, except during some of those holiday baking episodes, which is the point of this whole podcast episode, A lot of those once-a-year recipes will call for corn syrup. If you're doing candy making, some fudge recipes, of course, caramels, homemade marshmallows, popcorn balls, caramel corn, all of those things usually call for corn syrup. But I don't even stock it. I haven't stocked it for years. So you've got a couple of options when it comes to corn syrup. One is to use the same amount of either honey or maple syrup. Both of those are liquid form, so they're easy to sub into and they're not going to alter the rest of the recipe. So, for example, if it's a liquid sweetener and you try to switch it to granular, it's going to throw off all the other balance of everything within the recipe if it's got flour and all of that in it. 
So if it's already calling for corn syrup, obviously it's a liquid, then it's really easy to sub in the honey and or maple syrup. And I choose based upon how much maple syrup and honey I've got in stock, of course, but also on the flavor. Is it something where maple syrup would probably lend some better flavor tones to it or would the honey and vice versa? Another option that you can do for corn syrup is to take one cup of water and a quarter cup of sugar. And you'll generally want to heat the water up a little bit, have it be hot so that the sugar fully dissolves into it. And then you can use that in place of corn syrup in a recipe. Next up is brown sugar. If a recipe calls for brown sugar, you don't want to, generally speaking, just sub in regular white sugar because the brown sugar has got the molasses in it. So not only do you have the flavor of the molasses, but it actually has moisture in it. So if you do try to just do a direct sub, if a recipe calls for brown sugar and you try to just put regular white sugar in its place, you're going to affect the outcome a little bit and it'll be a little bit drier. So you would maybe want to increase the fat. But we always stock molasses. So you don't have to worry about running out of brown sugar. Now, we don't actually use regular white table sugar. What I use is organic evaporated cane juice, very similar to sugar in the raw. So it's not white. It's kind of a caramely, creamy color. But this substitution will work fine no matter what type of sugar you have, either the sugar in the raw, the evaporated cane juice, regular white sugar, doesn't matter. I've tested it with all of them. So you want to take one cup regular sugar and use one tablespoon molasses, and you're going to stir it up. You can stir it by hand. If you've got a food processor, that's going to do it really quickly for you to make light brown sugar. If you need dark brown sugar, then increase the molasses to two tablespoons of molasses, and that's going to give you the darker. So the one tablespoon is more the light or the golden brown sugar, not the dark. Powdered sugar. I rarely purchase powdered sugar from the store. But we really do need powdered sugar for certain recipes, especially when it comes to homemade frosting, because regular sugar ends up giving a pretty gritty texture if you've ever tried to use it. Can you tell from my voice that I have tried? <laughs> kind of tastes sandy. It's just not very pleasant, especially if it was like a buttercream or a cream cheese frosting. But you can just take a regular sugar, so cup of sugar, however much you need for the recipe, Put it in either a coffee grinder, high-powered blender, or food processor, and you want to pulse it. You don't want to get it super hot. So if it's a high-powered blender, then you might want to just use the pulse function or let it rest, check it, and then go back again if it's going to get really hot. It doesn't really damage it, but it'll kind of clump together. But just put it in the appliance of your choice and pulse it until it's fine and powdery. Now, what about... If you are baking and it's for diabetic or you're trying to keep your carb count low, you're trying to not use so much sugar, and around the holidays, it's hard to go without making baked goods, if that's your case. About two years ago, I started trying to use recipes or creating some recipes. Now, every now and then, if we're just having a special treat, especially like around the holidays, I will usually just make the recipe as is, especially if it's an old family favorite or a traditional recipe. But throughout the year, and sometimes some of the holiday recipes, I try to keep our sugar at a minimum. So this is a natural sugar-free substitute that I use that you can replace cup for cup in baking. What I use is one cup of erythritol, which is a natural sugar alcohol. 
So it's not like it's our Spartame or sometimes you'll see those different blends on the store shelves that say that they are sugar-free substitutes and they can have some not so good ingredients in them. Plus, this is a lot more frugal and I've linked in the show notes the brands that I use. I get them from Amazon, but I've linked there the exact brands that I use. Good thing that my husband does not listen to my podcast and neither do my kids yet. But I have used this in place of sugar and not even told them and made things, and they have not known the difference. So no bitter aftertaste, none of that going on. But I use one cup of erythritol with a half a teaspoon of powdered stevia, mix that together, and then you can use it cup for cup as you would sugar. Now, I have stevia extract, and I will use that if I'm doing sauces or just in my morning coffee. But for baking, I like to just mix this together and have that granulated powdered form. However, I have found that you do need to powder the erythritol just like you would when you're making powdered sugar. So you take the erythritol granules, put them in a coffee or spice grinder works really well. If you're doing something like frosting or a cheesecake or especially a glaze, especially with frosting and glazes, because otherwise it tends to be a little bit granular and it kind of gritty. So I have found that powdering it, especially for something like that. Now for like just regular cake, I haven't noticed any need to powder it. But if it's more like a creamy baked, like a filling or like I said, a cheesecake, powder does tend to work better. Next up on our substitution list is heavy cream, which is one of my favorite things. Oh my goodness. But you don't always have a heavy cream or maybe you don't have enough of heavy cream because you have used too much too liberally in your coffee or your homemade hot cocoa. Might have happened a time or two, but I got a good substitute for you. Use three quarter cup milk. Then we always buy whole milk. So whole milk is all that we drink. But three quarter cup milk and a quarter cup melted butter. So we need to put that fat back in there. A G would work as well, but... Melted is what we're after in the fat source that you're going to be using. I haven't tried it with coconut oil. I think that it would work, but of course, melted butter with the milk is really going to be the closest that you get to the cream. How about oil? Sometimes people want to just lower the fat content of a recipe, and other times you just might not have oil or you don't have enough. You can swap out in baked goods, I should say. Swap out cup for cup either applesauce and or pumpkin puree. So if your applesauce has sugar in it or is really sweet naturally, then you may want to cut back on the sweeteners within the recipe. Up next, I rarely have baker's chocolate on hand, like the little one ounce squares that you can break off. I've always got cocoa powder on hand. So this is a great substitution because whenever a recipe calls for one ounce of a semi-sweet chocolate square, I'm like, oh, I don't have any. So I got to work around for you. Three tablespoons of unsweetened cocoa or cacao powder with one tablespoon butter or coconut oil. So you want the butter to be soft and then you want to mix that together. And that is a replacement for one ounce. So whatever the recipe calls for in ounces, obviously you would double or triple or whatever you would need to to meet the ounces with that substitution. Last but not least, pumpkin pie spice. Pretty funny because pumpkin pie, spice, everything has become like a thing in the stores. Like, I think there's even like pumpkin pie, spice, Oreos, like 
foods that we don't really buy and have never tried, but I'm like pumpkin spice just kind of has exploded the past couple of years. But pumpkin pie spice in your baking, there's no need to buy pre-made pumpkin pie spice. It is so easy to make at home. In fact, I have never bought pumpkin pie spice, actually. I do stock quite a bit of spices in our pantry. And this is my favorite version of pumpkin pie spice because, true story, I cannot stand the taste of cloves. Ooh, it just like makes me shiver. Ugh, I don't like cloves. And most of the time when you buy pumpkin pie spice from the store, it's going to have some cloves in there. Now, if you like cloves, I'm going to still give you a recipe with a recommended amount so you can put your ground cloves in here. But I'm going to give you the cloves-free version as well. Two teaspoons ground cinnamon, one teaspoon ground ginger, one teaspoon ground nutmeg, which is one of my favorites. Oh, love nutmeg. Now, optional here. You can add in a half a teaspoon ground cloves, or you can choose to put in a half a teaspoon ground cardamom, which cardamom is kind of like my new thing. I only discovered it, seriously, like a year ago. None of the recipes that I have or growing up, I never really heard of it. And I really like it much better than cloves. If you want to, you can just do the cinnamon, ginger, and nutmeg. But if you're really used to kind of the store-bought version of pumpkin pie spice, then you probably are going to want to throw in the ground cloves and or the ground cardamom. But I have done it plenty of times without adding in the ground cardamom because, as I said, I just found out about it pretty recently as far as my baking goes. And it's awesome. And I call this pumpkin pie spice, but really it works awesome in apple pie. So it could be your apple pie spice or anytime you're doing a spice cake, it's a great blend to put in. And if you are looking for more old-fashioned, from scratch tips and cooking just like this, you are definitely going to want to check out or put it on your Christmas list and then let your Santa Claus know. Both my books, The Made From Scratch Life and Handmade, The Modern Guide to Made From Scratch Living, are packed with recipes and information just like this to help you serve up amazingly tasty food with old-fashioned whole ingredients. And if you have the Made From Scratch Life or you're planning on ordering it, you can go to, and I will link to it in today's show notes, madefromscratchlife.com and hit that bonus button. Then there's a little form for you to fill out. And one of the bonuses is a gorgeous ingredient substitution chart all done up for you that has a lot of these included in it. And it's really pretty. It looks like it's a chalkboard art. So you can actually print it out and frame it or keep it in your kitchen up on the wall. It's that pretty. But it's got that information for you too. On to our verse of the week. We're back in numbers. I have often noticed that sometimes when the good Lord is trying to tell me something, or I have now come to know that he is trying to tell me something, I will hear the same portion of scripture multiple places. It'll be in the sermon at church. Then that very week, it'll be one of the verses that we're studying in Bible study. I'll flip on a podcast or turn on the radio and there is that verse. So I have come to know if I start to hear a verse repeated in a short amount of time, there is something that I need to be paying attention to. That's why I'm going to share this portion with you. It has been popping up all over for me this week. So it made me 
go back to my Bible and go through it. What we're talking about is the story of Caleb and Joshua from Numbers chapter 14. So Caleb and Joshua went out with the spies to go and look at the promised land that God had promised the Israelites would be theirs. So they went out as scouts. There were 12 scouts or spies, if you will, who went out to seek this land. Now, mind you, God had promised them that it was theirs. He had delivered them from Egypt. They had been in the journey to the portion of land that was to be their inheritance. They had seen miracle upon miracle. They had seen the presence visually of God going before them as a light in the day and then at nighttime. But they went up to scout the land. And when they came back, their report said that the inhabitants of the land, Canaan, was stronger than they were, that there was no way that they would be able to overpower them and that they would be crazy to try to take this land away from the Canaanites, except for Caleb and Joshua. In fact, Caleb said, Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it. We are well able to conquer it. But these other scouts, the other 10 scouts, the people chose to believe them. They didn't believe in God's promise and they believed that they were defeated before they had even started or tried. And Caleb and Joseph told the Israelites again, Numbers 14, verse 7. And they said to all the company of Israelites, the land through which we passed as scouts is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, that he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, neither fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense in the shadow of protection is removed from over them. But the Lord is with us. Fear them not. That actually ended up being verses 7 through 9. But as the story goes, the Israelites did not listen to Caleb and Joshua. Therefore, none of them got to enter into the promised land. Instead, they had to return to the wilderness and wander through the desert for 40 years. And after those 40 years, when they had all perished and passed away, that generation, Caleb and Joshua got to enter into the promised land. Now, I got to tell you, there have been many times when I have just wondered about those Israelites. Like I said, they saw real, tangible miracles from heaven. Manna provided to them so many instances of the Lord. And yet it seems like every time they turned around, they were doubting him or they were testing him. They were rebelling against him. But honestly, if I start to examine my own heart and my own life, I tend to be more like the Israelites than I would like to admit. I think the biggest lesson that I'm getting out of this section is to believe on God's promises. It doesn't matter what our circumstances look like. If they're like giants, if the Lord has promised us things, which his word does, then we need to hold on to those promises. We need to have faith like Caleb and Joshua, even when it takes 40 years before we get to see that promise. We have to have the faith and the belief of what God's promises are and that he always delivers on his promises. I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Pioneering Today podcast. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving day filled with delicious from scratch food, a thankful heart, 
and the company of those you love. I'll be back here with you next week. Bye for now.